Luke chapter 4, this is, this is message number 8 in a, a series on Luke. We're going through the whole gospel, we're in no rush. We'll take breaks from it now and again and do other things, probably take a break quite soon. But we've reached chapter 4, and I want to read a couple of verses from chapter 3. Uh, so important that we read the Bible together, that we read it in context, that we see what's before and what's after, so we understand what's actually going on. In, in chapter 3, verse 21, we dealt with this last week, all the people were being baptized, and Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased, or in you I delight. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And then the list goes on, and we get to the end of chapter 3, the son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. If you just read chapter 4 without chapter 3, you can miss a little bit of what's going on here. Because Jesus has just gone through the waters of baptism. He's just heard the voice of his father declaring, You are my son. He's just, or Luke has just given us the the list of names of going back through the ancestry of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And again, emphasize that point the son of God. And then you're straight into chapter 4, and the devil comes and says, If you are the son of God. Straight away questioning what's been said. Have you ever felt like you are toe-to-toe with pure evil? That if you just turned around quick enough, you would see it behind you. It is so real. It is so apparent. It is so oppressive. We're not talking about sort of... um, minor league temptations here. We're not talking about the sort of the the pea shooter temptations that the devil might come at us with, that we sometimes think are big things and they are things that are addictive and damaging and will destroy us, destroy our relationships and all sorts of stuff and cause us to be filled with shame. But I'm not talking about those things this morning. Those are real. I'm talking about these are the big guns. These are the missiles in Satan's armory. He wants you to doubt who you are. And who God is. And if he can do that, then all the other temptations can flood in afterwards. The big one is to come between you and your father. Have you ever felt just so, so aware of the warfare that you are in? And this is why one of the things we're doing is just we shift with a prayer meeting. Can we get more of a voice of corporate prayer? Because we are so aware that the devil chucks the kitchen sink at this church. (laughs) And we need to be reacting and praying together. And you wonder, how did I get here? How did I end up in this wilderness? I was faithful. 
and I was honoring God and I was, was you know, not knee deep in sin and I wasn't toying around with evil and I was, I was trying to, to follow Jesus. I was, I was trying to be a disciple. Um, I was honoring God in every area of my life that I could. I'm not perfect, but I'm doing my best. How did I get to this wilderness? Why am I actually here? Have I done something wrong? And that's what the devil wants to do with these situations in our lives. These seasons when we go through a wilderness, he wants us to come to the conclusion there is something wrong with my relationship with my father. And therefore, that's why I'm in this position that I'm in. I have done something wrong. And because I've done something wrong, God has abandoned me and the enemy now has given me a battering. That's the conclusion that Satan wants us to come to. But we are not necessarily in the wilderness because we've done something wrong. We're in the wilderness because the Holy Spirit has brought us there. Because God is after something. Now the devil's after something as well. But God is after something in the wilderness. And God allows his children to go into the wilderness. Not just allows them to go in, leads them in. According to Mark's gospel, doesn't just lead them in, drives them in. <laughs> That's the word that Mark uses. Mentioned it last week. In Greek, it's the same word that is used whenever Jesus casts out a demon. That word for casting out. Mark says the spirit cast him in to the wilderness. That's how forceful this is. So do not draw the wrong conclusion that you are in a wilderness experience, if that's where you are, that you are in a wilderness experience because you have done something wrong and God is punishing you. That is untrue. All right, just get that out of your head. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. And there's a purpose in it. And it's so important. I, I, believe, I know I've said this over and over again, and I haven't actually preached on this passage for, for a while, but I think this is incredibly important in the life of Jesus. I really do. I think only the cross, and if you were to rank things in order, which is probably a dumb thing to do and I wouldn't encourage it, but obviously the cross and the resurrection. But this comes in very close. This is so, so important what Jesus does here. So important. And it, it's important enough for Jesus to obviously at some stage have sat down with his disciples and told them about this. No one else was with him. He was lonely and alone in the wilderness. And that can make it so much harder to go through. He was on his own. And yet he has come out of the wilderness. And at some stage, he has sat down with his disciples. And he has given them a detailed account of what he went through. So that both Matthew and Luke are able to present this account. Jesus saw this as being very, very important. He basically lifts the veil on his struggle so that we might understand our struggles. He shows us what he went through in order that we would have strength and understanding of what we go through. And we shouldn't really be surprised because this is quite common in the Bible. Somebody has a tremendous experience of vision, revelation, the presence of God, Jesus' baptism, incredible moment. Um, as I said last week, as he comes through the waters of baptism, he is mirroring what happened to Israel as Israel went through the Red Sea. And he comes up out of the water and the Spirit comes down and the voice speaks. And it's a powerful moment. And straight away up comes 
the enemy to start to whisper and start to create doubt, plant little seeds. God does not tempt people, but God does test people. He proves people. He allows them to go through periods of strain and testing to bring forth gold, to bring forth character. He wants to see what's in us. He tested Adam. He tested Israel. He tests his people to see how will we respond when the pressure's on. It's all well and good doing something for the kingdom of God in the early days when it's a novelty and everybody's excited and they're on board and you, everything's fantastic. But whenever the pressure goes on, how will we act and how will we react? God does not tempt people, but the devil will come in and try to take advantage of these situations in order to tempt us and divide us away from God. And we don't know in this story, was the devil, you know, how how did he actually appear? Did he appear? Was it in Jesus' mind? Uh, What, you know, we know the devil was there. We know the devil was the source of this, but we we don't know quite what it looked like. We just don't have those details. We don't need them. But there's a string of ideas that come into Jesus' head. And they're all very plausible ideas. And they sound fine. And they sound reasonable enough. And this is the way the devil works. He's the serpent from the garden who comes in and spews out poison. That's why he's likened to a snake. Because of everything in, in the, the world that God has created, the first thing you think of with a snake is there's poison in the mouth of that thing. <laughs> and that's why Satan is compared to a snake. Snakes have poisonous mouths. It really grieves me sometimes whenever Christians speak poison. It's a horrendous thing to do. To speak poison against one another, against anyone else. To actually take on that role of the serpent spewing out poison, criticism. All sorts of unpleasant things. There are times when I have bumped into people who have never been here and have nothing to do with this place but I know what they've said about it and they're as nice as can be and I just feel like saying you snake (laughs) you absolute snake someday I'm going to do it I'll tell you how it goes Um, the, the question is for Jesus, who has just been declared, you are my son, who has just been reeled all the way back to Adam and declared again the son of God, what kind of son will he be? A son is called to display the characteristics of his father. Adam was to display the character of God. Israel is declared to be God's son in the book of Exodus and was supposed to show the world the character of God. Jesus comes, God's son. How's he going to do? What kind of son will he be? Is he going to faithfully show the world what God is like? He's going to have to face the same thing that Adam faced. In the garden, Adam was tempted to eat. And in the wilderness, Jesus will be tempted to eat. You understand that boring list of names at the end of chapter 3 is there for a reason. Luke is setting you up and saying, see the whole way through this first part of chapter 4, you keep thinking about Adam. You keep thinking about another son of God who went through a time of testing with the serpent. You keep thinking about that. Hold that in the background. 
Jesus has just come through, as I said, the waters of baptism, the same as Israel going through the Red Sea. Between the Red Sea and the Promised Land was the wilderness, 40 years of testing over and over again, being tested by God over and over again, failing idolatry and grumbling and putting God to the test and moaning about the bread and moaning about the quail and just moaning about everything. Israel was tested in the wilderness and failed over and over and over again. Will Jesus be a faithful son? Will he be a faithful son? And Satan's goals in the wilderness are these. He's after your identity and he's after your calling. In, in studying this out, I find that you know, some Bible scholars lean into Jesus' identity and they say the only thing that Satan's after here is Jesus' identity as a son of God. He wants to wreck his identity. And then there are other Bible sc- scholars who will say, no, the only thing that, that Satan is after is Jesus' calling, to actually take his calling away from him. I think it's both. I think it's definitely both. Okay? What Satan is after is he wants you to doubt your identity and he wants you to abandon your calling. That's what he is after in the wilderness. Now hold that. That is so important. If you're going through what you would call a wilderness experience in your life, where you feel like you are on your own, where you do not, you're not aware of the presence of God as Jesus in the wilderness, very quiet. Baptism, very loud. Wilderness, very quiet. If you're going through that, I want you to know that in that, Satan is after two things. He wants you to doubt your identity as a child of God. And he wants you to abandon the calling that God has placed on your life. Because at the baptism, two things were said about Jesus. You are my son. I related that back to to Psalm 2 last week as well. It's, it's, It's language of the king. In Psalm 2, you are my son. His identity was declared at the baptism. That's who you are. And then the phrase, in whom I am well pleased, comes from Isaiah 42. It's related to a passage in Isaiah that is all about the servant of the Lord and the servant of the Lord will suffer. And basically what God says to his son at the baptism, you are my son and the journey that you're going on will involve suffering. Those are the two things. That's your calling, that's your identity. And Satan straight away is trying to attack those two things. That's why I think these are the big guns of of Satan's arsenal against us, these temptations. These are the big, big guns. If he can get you to doubt who you are, you're really a child of God. If he can get you to doubt that, And if he can get you to abandon the calling that God has placed on your life, then he wins. He wins. God says, you are my son. Satan says, if you are the son of God. So three temptations. The first one. If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? You're hungry. <clears throat> you fasted for 40 days. The fast is over. Surely it's logical enough to eat. Later on, Jesus would turn water into wine, so he's got no problem turning something into something else. He can do it. It's not wrong to do it. It's not wrong to eat bread. 
Um, and after fasting, you know, Luke tells us as one of those wee phrases that you smile when you read it. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. <laughs> yes, okay. Obviously, yes, he was. Uh, I remember uh, talking to a guy one time who had fasted <laughs> for 24 hours. And uh, about, about hour 23, he was getting it tight. <laughs> He'd never done it before. And uh, he's, he's, just in case you're trying to guess, he's not here and... and, and has not been, um, but at about at about eleven p.m. with an hour to go, he thought, "I'll open a bag of crisps and I'll lick them," <laughs> <laughs> because I won't actually really be eating anything, but I'll get that wee bit of flavour that, that my mouth really needs. And he opened the bag of crisps and started licking a crisp, and then he just devoured the whole bag in about two minutes. You know, yes, you're hungry after fasting. Nothing wrong with this suggestion. Sure there's not. This is how the devil comes. Oh, it's very plausible. It's very, very plausible. Turn these stones into bread. It's re- it sounds innocent and it sounds good. And the test is, again, do you believe you are my son? If you are the son of God, and will you be faithful to your calling? The, te- the temptation that Satan brings in is to allow our physical appetites to cause us to doubt God. Our physical appetites, we all have them, and they are good. But when a good thing becomes elevated to becoming the most important thing, we're in trouble. And the devil wants us to take those real physical appetites and needs that every human being designed, created in the image of God has, and he wants us to elevate those to number one spot. And he wants us to then doubt the goodness of God. If you're a child of God, why are you hungry? If you're a child of God, why do you find it hard to make ends meet at the end of the month? You work hard. You honor God. Why, if you're a child of God, why is that so difficult? If you're a child of God, why are you sick? Really? Why are you sick if you're a child of God? That couldn't be right. You couldn't be. There must be something wrong with your relationship with God if you're sick. If you're a child of God, why are you alone? God, surely he wouldn't want that for you. If you're a child of God, that's the way he comes. He takes our real desires and he starts to then use those desires that are unfulfilled for whatever reason and causes us to try and doubt who God is. He wants us to make false deductions about God from our circumstances. And then we allow those things to settle in our minds. And we're like, for example, yes, I do work really, really hard and I do honor God and it can be tight at the end of the month. And then the voice comes and says, if you're the son of God, why are you getting it tight? And then you start to think, yeah, right enough. Right enough. Why am I getting it tight? That does not up. If God's a good father and a loving father and an abundant father and a father who provides, why, why are we getting it tight? And all of a sudden, that little thought starts to turn and turn and turn. And maybe he's not good. Maybe he's not faithful after all. Maybe I can't trust him. You see what he does? He just creeps in. He takes that appetite and he elevates it and uses it to cause us to question the goodness of God. 
If you're the son of God, there must be something wrong with your relationship with him. Take a look at yourself. Just look at yourself. Seriously, do you look? If somebody looked at you, would they say that's a child of God? Look at what you're going through. Eh? The temptation is always to then question my identity because of what I feel I lack. And the temptation as well here for Jesus is to use his power to provide for himself. He never did that ever, ever. He could have turned, he could have turned stones into bread anytime he wanted. He could turn water into wine. I think if this temptation was changed, it would be turn, turn water into a latte for me would be a tough one to deal with. I'm sitting in my room at lunchtime with an old bottle of water beside me just thinking, oh man, if I could just turn that into a latte. He comes to Jesus trying to get Jesus to use his power in a selfish way. Jesus never did that. It was always seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added onto you. You see, discipleship is about denying yourself and trusting God. Temptation is about feeding yourself. It is, just, it is the, the absolute polar opposite of discipleship to give in to temptation. Deny self at one end, just stuff yourself with all sorts of things at the other end. That's the first temptation. The second one is to worship Satan. Now, not to put up some sort of idol in his front room and bow before it, but to give his devotion to Satan and to try to achieve God's goal for his life by some other way. Listen to how poisonous this is. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, that's a lie, so I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now this is a tricky one. The devil comes and says to Jesus, I will give you everything you want. I will give you everything that God wants you to have. God wants you to be the king. God wants his kingdom to come. God wants you to rule the nations. I'll give you that. I'll give you that. So poisonous. What is it that you desire? And instead of trusting God for it, and you know it's a good thing, and you know it's something he would want you to have or enjoy or experience, but instead of trusting him for it, when the devil sneaks in and says, I'm going to give you that if you'll just bow the knee to me. And then the temptation comes. Reject the suffering. Reject the path of pain. Jesus knows from his baptism that he is the king. You are my son, Psalm 2. He's the king. He knows that his path will involve suffering from Isaiah 42 and, and around chapters around that. And, and Satan basically comes and says, I'll give you the king bit. I'll give you that. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But don't do that suffering thing. Come away from all that talk of the cross. Come away from all that talk of denying yourself, laying your life down for others. Come away from that. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you a shortcut. I'll give you an easy way. Just bow the knee to me. Just worship me. 
It's so tempting to take the easy path that does not involve pain or suffering. So tempting. Especially when at the end of that path, it looks like we're going to get what God would want us to have. This is the poison. This is a massive temptation. This is not a temptation. This is not sort of uh, a temptation to lose your temper. It's not a temptation to look at something inappropriate. It's not a temptation to, to overeat or to overdrink or whatever. Those things are wrong and the devil can get his hooks into you and cause addictions in your life through those things. But this is massive. This is, I'll give you what you want. Just worship me. Reject the path of discipleship. Reject the path of following Jesus, following God's ways, and just worship me. Satan will appeal to our ambition. I'll give you everything you want. You won't, Jesus, you won't have to touch that broken world. You won't have to touch lepers, Jesus. You know those dirty, smelly lepers. You won't have to touch them if you come my way. Jesus, you won't have to face rejection if you come my way the rejection that you're going to face from all those religious people, you, if you come my way, Jesus, you won't have to walk that path of suffering. You won't The scourging that lies ahead and the suffering, not going to have to do that, Jesus. Come my way. The whipping, the slaps in the face, the mockery from soldiers, the cross itself, leave all that. Leave all that. Come my way. My way is easier and you'll get the same thing at the end of it. But he's a liar and he never, ever delivers. Ever ever, never delivers. We don't need um, slick ways of achieving God's goals. We need faithfulness. We need a cross and we need a resurrection to achieve the goals of God. Jesus will not take shortcuts and I would advise you strongly, do not take shortcuts to things that seem good but aren't, it's not the way that God has called you. I can just, I can imagine as I read this temptation, I can imagine Satan sort of dropping the mask a little bit and his, his voice is changing and he's becoming, you know, there's, there's just this poison flooding from him. Forget God, worship me, do it my way. Forget being suffering, forget being patient, forget suffering, forget pain, do it my way. Come the easy way. Stop worshiping God and worship me instead. You ever, you ever get that? You ever know there's a path in front of you that is a painful path and there's another path that is an easy path and at the end of the two paths, it looks like the same thing is there. But once you start walking down the easy path, all of a sudden, what, what appears to be at the end of it will just vanish and vaporize and you will be lost. Back to Mark Sayers, who I've quoted quite a few times in the last couple of months. He says, Our culture of hedonism, which means basically pleasure-seeking, our culture of hedonism has created in us a low pain threshold that prevents us from persevering through the pain that must accompany the processes that lead to breakthrough renewal. God has ordained it this way that there is a painful journey before breakthrough comes. And what Satan wants you to do is halfway down that road to quit and not to persevere, not to push through the pain, not to push through whatever it is that you're going through, but to just shortcut out of it, get off God's path, get onto an easier path, and then you miss the breakthrough. 
And I wonder if we could somehow visualize all of the breakthroughs that God has had in front of us during times of pain that we were so close to actually laying hold of. All the breakthroughs, but during the time of pain, we broke and we got to the point where we just couldn't take it anymore. He wants to remove us from Jesus' way of the cross. He wants to take all suffering and pain away from us. And a lot of Christian preachers, unfortunately, help the devil out with that one by preaching a message that if you're a Christian, everything will always be fine. It won't. As long as we are living in a fallen world and as long as there is a devil and a darkness that is opposed to the church of Jesus Christ, it will not be all right and it will not be easy. And it is a false gospel to present people with a Jesus who makes your life hunky-dory and completely free from any challenge. Third and final temptation is why don't you prove yourself basically and prove God by throwing yourself down. The devil led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, back to that again, that phrase, he loves that phrase. If you're the son of God, if you're a Christian, why are you living like this? If you're a Christian, why are your circumstances like that? If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Satan basically says, right, we're going to quote the Bible, are we, in this battle in the wilderness? We're going to use scripture? Well, I can use scripture too. That's something we need to be careful about. The devil knows the Bible. And I would say he knows it better than any of us. He's had a lot longer to read it, to understand it. He knows the word of God and he will twist it and use it anytime he gets a chance. And what he's basically saying is to Jesus is this. Why don't you take yourself to the highest point of the temple, which is about 450 feet above the bottom of the Kidron Valley, and why don't you throw yourself off It'll be an amazing display. Loads of people will say, man, he is the business. I'm going to follow him. And according to Psalm 91, which is what Satan quotes there, uh, God will send his angels and they will catch you. And it'll just be, just imagine what you'll be able to do the next day. Just set up Jesus Christ International Ministries and get a private jet and everything you need and thousands of people flocking to Jerusalem. This is the way to go, Jesus. This is the way to go. And he's trying to get Jesus to do something that looks like an act of faith. Trying to get him to to set up this false circumstance which forces God's hand. Jump off the temple. God will have to protect you. No, he won't. (laughs) Because if he didn't tell you to jump off the temple, you better not jump off any temples. And I remind you again, Peter did not get out of the boat until Jesus told him to. Peter said to Jesus, if it's, if it's you, Lord, tell me to come out of the boat onto the water. And Jesus says, yes, it's me. Don't be jumping out of boats left, right and center if Jesus has not told you to. Don't take risks that force him to prove himself. That's what Israel did in the wilderness. Every test Jesus went through, Israel went through in the wilderness. Israel tried to force God to prove himself. They put him to the test over and over again. He did not like it. Jesus is not going to do it. That's why he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And the third temptation is about trying to get the Father to prove himself and about Jesus also proving himself. Do you crave the approval of others? You know, do you crave the, the popularity and, boy, you're really good at that. That was really good. You did really well there. It's lovely to be affirmed by people, but I want to tell you something. Confession time, I have drank from a poisonous cup of approval. Out of these, as I look at these, I, the one that I think probably that, that I am most susceptible to is when you have somebody approving you. That's addictive stuff. That's addictive stuff. It really is. When you have somebody telling you that you're, you're really good, that you're doing something really well. Paul warned us about being man pleasers, about doing things to get the approval or to keep the approval of others. And Jesus here is being tempted to do something amazing in order to gather a crowd and pull in people's approval. It's easy to be a man pleaser. It's easy to dull down the message of discipleship in order to draw a crowd. Very easy. It's hard to be faithful to Jesus and his call to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him and to continually lay that before yourself and before others because it's not wild popular and it doesn't draw a crowd. It doesn't get approval. We need to be so careful that the approval of others does not affect how we live and the decisions we make. And I find that the more prominent a person is, the more their approval becomes addictive. But let's just put that in the light of the fact that if it's a, if it's a calm night and you can gaze up at the stars... There's no one more important or more prominent than the one who made those. If you go home and look in the mirror and look at the the marks on your iris and the way God has painted it, there's no one more important or great than that. He is the one whose approval we should seek. Only him, not the approval of others. It is so tempting sometimes when you're in conversation with someone and you are calling them to discipleship. It's so tempting to dull it down so that they will approve of you. Jesus would not do these things to gain approval. Does any of this sound familiar? Mm-hmm. We're not talking about the low-key temptations that are real. We're talking about the big guns. Are you really a child of God? Can I separate you from your calling? You've been called to a path of suffering and pain so that God's kingdom will come. Can I get you off that path onto a path of ease? Does it sound familiar? It sounds familiar to me. I can tell you that every Saturday night, <laughs> round about seven or eight o'clock, there's a darkness falls on me. And there's a voice that I hear saying, you've got nothing to say. You've got nothing to say. Nobody wants to hear anything. You've got nothing to say. You wake up on Sunday morning and it's still there. You've got nothing to say. Battling through that can be so, so hard. Satan effectively finishes with a quote from Arnie. I'll be back. He says to Jesus that in, in verse 13, or it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. 
comes back in the garden, Jesus says, now your time has come. Whenever they come to arrest him, now your time has come. He comes back through the poisonous mouths of the people who criticize and oppose Jesus. He comes back in chapter 4, just a few verses later, when they try to chuck Jesus off a cliff. He comes back at the cross when, when there are snakes at the bottom of the cross and their venomous tongues are wagging. If you're the Son of God, come down. Same thing. He keeps coming back. He will keep returning. And in the wilderness now, it's all gone quiet again. And hungry Jesus, exhausted Jesus, is sitting. What kind of son will he be? I really think this is so important. This is just This is not just a cute, ditzy little story on the way to the cross. This is the moment that I believe Satan was bound. This is the moment I believe Jesus is referring to later on in the gospel when he says, if you bind the strong man, you can plunder his house. And I believe in Luke chapter 4, Jesus binds the strong man in the wilderness and then he goes plundering and he sets people free, and he casts out demons, and he heals the sick, and he preaches the gospel to the poor, and lives are transformed, and the dead are raised, because he has overcome in the wilderness. How did he break through? Scripture's full of examples of of people being tested in the wilderness. I've been thinking a lot again this last few days just about David, anointed, called, chosen, you're going to be king, and the oil's poured in his head, and he's like, I'm going to be king, And then he's in the wilderness being chased by a madman. Just like Jesus. David's running around in the wilderness. And you know the the funny thing about it is, David has opportunities to kill King Saul. To get rid of this madman. And he doesn't take them. He doesn't take them. He will not achieve God's purposes in his own strength. Or by his own means. Or by an easy method. He will walk the painful path that God has chosen for him. Breakthrough for Jesus came through submission to the Word of God. Not by quoting it. Please don't misunderstand this, that if we just quote a verse, the right verse from the right version at the right time, it's like, bam, you know, and Satan gets squished because we quoted the proper verse. It's not about that. It is about a life of submission to the Word of God. Your quoting scripture will mean nothing if your life is not governed by scripture and lived in obedience to scripture. It was submission to the word of God. It was clinging to what God had said that was so important in winning this victory over the devil. We must know the word of God, but more important than simply knowing it, we must live by it. Because quoting a verse, I think if you could hear Satan speak, if you quote quote a verse at him and he knows that your life is not faithfully lived in obedience to Scripture in the power of the Holy Spirit, he'll just come back at you and say, what are you even talking about? I know the way you live. You can quote all day. You can chuck Scriptures at me all day. I know the way you live. You have no power. You have no power. It is about submission and obedience to the Word of God. It's so important, you know, Jesus meditates in the wilderness on these verses. Man does not live on bread alone. Worship the Lord your God, serve him only. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. He's meditating on the word of God. He's chewing it. He's, 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 he's just mulling it over and clinging to it. He's maybe praying it out loud as he's walking in the wilderness. It's so important. You know, one of the things I said to Stephen this morning was just talking about what, what songs to sing afterwards. And it's so important that 
are, are singing as well. We are singing about who God is. Because Satan wants to come and say, you know, are you really a child of God? Is he really a good father? Look at the mess you're in. Is he a good father? So we sing about the goodness of God. And we declare it. And we're declaring it to ourselves and to one another. Singing that he is good. Singing that he is faithful. Singing that he is loving. It is so important. It's not again just a wee cute, let's have a wee time of singing. No, we are declaring in the wilderness the character of God so that the serpent cannot confuse us into thinking that God is not good. He submits to the word of God. He does not argue with temptation. Folks, be careful. Do not play around with temptation. Because once you start to play around with it, it will become an idea that is too attractive to resist. Too attractive to resist. Again, the story I've told you before, a, a, a story of a guy who was applying for the job of driving the king's carriage up the side of a mountain or around the side of a mountain. And there was a road at the side of the mountain that was quite, quite a narrow road and the king wanted someone who could, who could direct his carriage up this road and three guys applied for the job. And one of them comes and says, King, I can drive that carriage within one foot of the edge of that cliff and I'll be in control and I will keep you safe. And the king says, okay. And he listens to the next guy and the next guy comes and says, King, I will be able to drive that carriage within six inches of the side of that cliff and I'll be able to keep you safe. And he says, okay. The third guy comes and says, King, I'm going to keep that carriage as far away from the edge of the cliff as I possibly can. And he got the job. Some of us love to go six inches from sin and it's a dangerous game. Run from it as hard as you can. Do not flirt with temptation. And Jesus, another thing, and this might sound surprising, but in the wilderness, Jesus does not need to hear a fresh word from God. He's already got the word of God. He has heard God speak at his baptism. He knows the word of God and he has it in his heart and he's submitted to it. And in the wilderness, he is not troubled by the silence of the heavens. He's got the word of God. And sometimes when we're going through difficult times, one of the best things to do is A, be, be meditating on scripture and B, get back and think, what has he spoken to me in the past? I've heard nothing different since. I'm going to cling to what he said. I'm going to cling to what he said. At the end of Luke chapter 3, we're, we're asked, basically invited to compare Jesus to Adam. You know, in, 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 the, in the paradise or in the garden, Adam was tempted to eat and he ate. And what, what did Adam lose? He lost paradise. He was driven out and the gate was closed and mankind was driven out of paradise. Jesus goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with the devil here and at the cross, and it's only in Luke's gospel that you read it. On the cross, he says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. <laughs> Adam failed and lost paradise. Jesus prevailed, and he opened the gates and says, we're going back in. I've made the way open again. I've defeated the serpent. There's a direct link, and I'm finished, almost. There's a direct link between victory over temptation and power. And many of us do not live in the power of the Spirit. The next verse in Luke's Gospel says that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. That's what God wanted in this process. 
And so may I tell you, if you're going through a wilderness, God has you close to a breakthrough where you will come out in the power of the Spirit. If you can cling to your identity and you can cling to your calling and hold on to what God has said, breakthrough is so close. It breaks my heart when Christians are so close to breakthrough, so close to power and the collapse in the wilderness because of the temptations of the enemy. There's a direct link between power and victory over temptation. And Jesus says later in Luke's gospel, and I love this, he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes. If I meet any of my snakes, <laughs> I'll not trample on them. But snakes, I think, in this context are demons, and they are the emissaries of the enemy. And Jesus says, because of what I did on my own in that wilderness, you can do it. I have given you power. I have given you authority to trample on snakes. I've done it. I took the chief snake and I trampled on him. And now you can do it. Yeah. So, Father, James tells us to, to consider it joy when we go through trials. And it's so hard to do that. But Lord, I pray that our eyes will be lifted up and focused completely on you. I pray, Father, that even now, by the power of your Spirit, Lord, you would remind people in this room of things that you have spoken over them in the past. That you would rekindle, Lord, that you would give fresh faith that scriptures would come alive in our hearts once again by the power of your Spirit. For those who are in a wilderness season and who are hearing snakes all around them all the time, Father, strengthen them, I pray. Strengthen them, I pray, Lord. May they be encouraged, Lord, that you have given them authority to trample on snakes. May they rise above it, Father, and may they be victorious, Lord. May they come out in the power of the Spirit with that old devil back in the wilderness, just wringing his hands, wishing he had never come near them. Father, I ask for strength for your people. I ask for strength for this church, Lord, that you will stand with us, Lord, that you will empower us and strengthen us, Lord. We ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to fall in this place and in this town, Lord. But I just pray, God, for brothers and sisters here who are maybe going through the battle of their lives and no one knows a thing about it. God, uphold them. God, uphold them, Lord. Help them, Lord. Help them to look to you, to follow your example, to be in your word, to be full of the Holy Spirit and to be victorious, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And Lord, may we always just remember who you are and not let the snake deceive us, Lord. You are good and you are faithful and you are loving and you've never let us down and you never will let us down. Lord, help us to sing and shout truth, to silence, to silence the poison of that forked tongue in Jesus' name. Amen.